Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from Epicos Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For more information about Epicos, please visit epicos.org. Good morning. How are we doing today? We good? Man, it is so good to be with you. If you've never had the chance to meet, my name is Tommy. I serve as one of the pastors here on staff at Epicos. I would love some point to meet you if you're here at West Dallas. If you're at the other campuses, I'd love to meet you too, but you got campus pastors. Meet them as well, all right? They're great guys who love Jesus who would love to meet you. Whether you're at Mayfair, Sherman, or you're up at the east side, man, I'm so glad that we get this opportunity to hear from God's word. Uh, as, we're gonna, as you probably have heard, we're continuing on in New City or this story where we're walking through the New Testament and doing kind of an overview of each of the books. And today we're going to be in First and Second Thessalonians. So if you want to open your Bible, smartphone, study guide, Maybe all of the above. Uh, if you want to open those up and turn to First and Second Thessalonians, go ahead and get there. And as you're opening up, I want to start today by asking you a question. And here's the question, but I want to be very careful. Don't answer it right away, all right? Think about it. And here's the question. Which is more important, what I believe or what I do? Which is more important? What I believe or what I do? Um, This is actually a really fun question to start off small group with. Uh, You ask this in a group of about 20 people, go around the circle, you're going to get a great conversation. I remember asking this once, and we went around, and everybody said the same thing except for one person. Now, I'm not going to tell you what they said um, at all. In fact, we're going to answer this question later on, but I want you to stew on this. How would you answer this? Which is more important, what I believe or what I do. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to be thinking, as we hear from 1 Thessalonians today, I want you to think first, how would you answer this? But also, how do you think Paul, the writer of this letter, would answer this question? Sound good? All right? I want you to be thinking about that as we go, and we will answer this later on. So with that in mind, let's dive in. So we're going to be in 1 and 2 Thessalonians. So you've got your Bibles open. And before we jump into the content of the letter, I want to talk about the context. I want to talk about what's going on around the letter. Um, Paul and Silas, he's also known as Silvanus, um, were missionaries traveling all around spreading the good news of Jesus. Um, And eventually they landed in this area of Thessalonica. Thessalonica. Um, And there they shared the good news of Jesus. They shared about how Jesus lived his teachings, his countercultural kingdom, about Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, and how all of these truths played out in real life for this church. Um, And they also shared that Jesus promised that he will come again one day and set all things right. Now, I want to make a little caveat. This book does talk about end times. I don't know if you knew that or not. It actually does. We get some of our theology on the end times from Thessalonians. Um, But just so you know, we're not going to dive into that today. So if you came excited to talk about end times, come back in a few weeks. We're going to dive into Revelation, all right? We're going to get there. It's just not going to be today. We're going to really dive into another part of the letter. Um, But leading up to writing this letter, Paul and Silas were declaring the good news of Jesus and his teachings. And in response to hearing the truth, many in Thessalonica came to become followers or disciples of Jesus. And that's amazing, right? Isn't that what you would hope would happen when you share Jesus, that a person would come to want to follow him? And this is what happens. And these new believers started to create a church where they began learning more about Jesus. And then they were putting those practices or the things they were learning into their real life. Uh, In response, the church actually saw massive growth. It grew so fast that the local governing authority, the Jews, as well as the overarching authority, Rome, caught wind of it and they were not thrilled with what was going on. You see, 
Jewish leaders did not like the message being preached. And they didn't like that the people that they were trying to lead were leaving. And so they went to Rome and complained and riled up the authorities saying that Christians were claiming Jesus is better than Caesar. Now imagine you're a Roman. You can imagine that doesn't sit well, right? That probably did not sit well. And in fact, it didn't. And persecution began to happen very quickly. And it became so intense that Paul and Silas had to flee. They actually had to leave. And when they fled, let's be honest, the church probably should have folded in on itself, right? Their leadership had left. And in fairness, yeah, they probably should have dissolved. But it didn't. In fact, the church began to flourish. Many people saw the way the church was living in response to the persecution and became enticed by it. It drew them in. Many people began to follow Jesus because of the persecution that happened. And all that I just talked about, I know I spent like two minutes talking about it. Here's kind of what's the craziest part. It happened in three weeks. Three weeks. That's fast. I don't know if you remember what happened three weeks ago, but it wasn't that long ago that like, it, 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 it comes quicker. In three weeks, Paul and Silas shared the gospel. Lots of people came to know Jesus. A church started. Persecution followed us. Paul and Silas had to flee, and the church grew like wildfire. That's the basis for which this letter is written. That's the background. And at the time at First Thessalonians is written, Paul and Silas have actually moved on to another town to do the exact same thing. Share Jesus, start a church, and start sharing the good news of Jesus. Um, but when they moved, their heart was still with this church in Thessalonica. They still wanted to be with them, so they wrote this letter. All right? So that's the context. That's where this letter is written. And as, keep that in mind as we go. New church, still growing. So we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians, the first three verses. So follow along. I'm going to read these. This is the beginning of the book. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Man, I love this beginning of this book, all right? In a few short verses, Paul says a lot. A big thing to point out is what I believe is the foundation for the entire rest of the book, Um, and, and it's this, Paul saying, Thessalonians, keep doing what you're doing, which is to base all of your faith, hope, and love in Jesus Christ. Remember, this is a young church, and they're going through it. So the encouragement actually makes sense, right? He's saying, Jesus is your anchor point. Stay the course. In fact, the first three chapters of 1 Thessalonians build upon this encouragement. Um, And they actually, all he talks about pretty much in the first three chapters is encouragement, encouragement, encouragement. Now, I'm not going to go through and look at each individual encouragement in those chapters. Rather, let me summarize the first three chapters in one sentence. Keep Jesus as your foundation and keep doing what you're doing. You guys are an amazing example to the other churches. Even as Paul was encouraging the church, Paul has to admit he didn't think the church was going to make it. In fact, in chapter 3, Paul admits that he feared the church would run away and would dissolve because of the persecution. However, he is amazed that they have stayed the course. Amidst persecution and even the threat of death, it did not deter this group from following Jesus, which begs the question, why would this group stay the course? Why would they endure such massive social and physical threats where four weeks before they didn't even know who Jesus was? And I think it's this, it's because of their amazing foundation found 
in Jesus. For Paul, nothing is of more importance than having your life anchored in Jesus Christ. And let me say, he's right. (laughs) Jesus is the king of kings. He's Lord, creator of all things. He's fully God, fully man. He came, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, proclaimed a new counter-cultural kingdom, died a death he did not deserve, rose again three days later, conquering sin and death, and did all of that so you and I could know, experience, and be in a relationship with this loving God, Jesus. Isn't that good? This is the truth that changed who Paul was. That message is what transformed each person in this young church that we're reading about. And if I'm being completely honest, why we today have a basis for which we can endure hard times. This message is transformational and it's the message this. It's all centered on Jesus. All right, can I get an amen? (laughs) This is the truth. It here is everything, and I mean every single thing, every person, place, idea, action, reaction. Everything should be centered on Jesus. And this is Paul's why. This is Paul's reason for everything he does. In fact, he says this is the reason Thessalonica, these people are willing to do it. He, Paul is willing to risk everything because of this. And so is the church. And Paul actually commends them for living this foundation out well. Now, wouldn't you love for someone to encourage you that way? Wouldn't you love to hear as a follower of Christ, man, you're doing an awesome job? I mean, if I'm honest, I would. (laughs) To tell someone, hey, you're doing great. Keep it up. Well done. You're following Jesus. Your faith, hope, and love in Jesus is so immense. And your way of living is following that. Keep it up. Man, in the first three chapters of 1 Thessalonians, that's exactly what Paul is doing to the church. Now, after spending the first three chapters encouraging the church, he takes a slight turn in chapter four. If you want to flip over real quick, 1 Thessalonians 4, we're going to look at the first three verses there as well. And in there, he takes a slight turn. So follow along as I read. He says, finally then, this is after he's encouraged them, he says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk in us to please God, just as you are doing, you do so more and more. For you know what instruction we gave you through Jesus Christ. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. So Paul starts this section of the letter by saying, you've received Jesus. You've made him the king of your life. That's great. And your actions are proving it. Now continue to do it more and more. Walk in a manner that shows that that's true. Stay the course. Let how you live be shaped by your faith, hope, and love in Jesus. He actually further clarifies this by saying, now that you've accepted Jesus, continue to walk in a way that helps you grow to be more like him. Um, These aren't my words. Do you see verse three? What does he say? For this is the will of God, your sanctification. All right, I've talked with lots of people who are like, I just want to figure out what the will of God is. Paul's like, guess what? Here it is. So if you've asked this question, Paul is telling you what it is. And so what is sanctification? Well, sanctification is a weird word, right? When's the last time you talked about this with somebody? When's the last time it came up in everyday conversation? Probably not, right? Maybe. It's a church word. So maybe it came up in church. Well, what is sanctification? Well, let me give you a definition. Sanctification is the process of someone taking on the character and mind of Christ. Sanctification is the process, emphasis on that word, of someone taking on the character and mind of Christ. 
Another word you might hear with this often being used with sanctification is spiritual formation. Um, Sanctification is the process by which you are spiritually formed or the journey in patterns in your life that God uses to help you become more like him. It's about taking the truth of who Jesus is and allowing that knowledge to transform you to become more like Christ. And it's active. (laughs) It's not a passive thing. The patterns of your life will change you. I eat more donuts, I will pay the price, right? If I'm doing the things that Jesus commands, I will become more like Jesus. How you put these practices and teachings of Jesus into your life will shape you. What you do is important. It will show you what you believe. Now, let me be clear. What he's not talking here about salvation. I'm talking about not like the process to earn salvation. We can't earn that. All right? That is given to us by God. I'm talking about what happens after we come to know Jesus. As we continue to learn about him and through our faith in Christ, how does that lead to what we're doing? What you do matters because it will show what you think of Jesus. This is actually in line with what Paul says through the rest of the book. Uh, one commentator puts it this way, and I think it sums up the book really well. Following Jesus will lead to a countercultural or holy way of thinking and living. Following Jesus or being a disciple or a follower of him will lead to a countercultural or holy way of thinking and living. Living a sanctified life is one that is becoming more like Jesus and will lead you to live differently than the world around you. Church, hear me. Your faith, hope, and love should be anchored in Christ Jesus. And that's great. (laughs) That's a good thing. Paul is saying continue to make sure you live a life that shows that you believe that. That's his challenge. In light of the truth of Jesus and your belief in who he is, fulfill the will of God in your life to continue to grow to be like him. So that begs the question, how do we do that? How do we live a sanctified life? What areas of life will help me show what I believe? Well, I think there's lots of areas we could talk about, right? We could talk about finances, relationships, what sort of patterns or practices in your life do you do? Things like reading your Bible, showing up to church, generosity, tithing, solitude, community, corporate worship, just to name a few. And while we could easily jump into that for the rest of our time, those actually aren't the topics Paul uses in this book. In fact, Paul actually talks about two specific areas to kind of lay out this idea of what does a countercultural or following Jesus way of life look like. The first comes just after in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 6. Check this out, all right? If you got your Bible, go, go ahead and go back there. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Remember, becoming more like Christ. That you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles, who do not know God, that one transgresses and wrong his brothers in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warn you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Look, following Jesus will lead to a countercultural or holy way of living. It will. And one of Paul's first challenges to the church is to abstain from sexual immorality. To abstain, or in other words, just don't do it. (laughs) 
avoid it at all costs. Actively choose not to do it. And abstain from what does Paul say? Sexual immorality. Or let me try to give you a definition. Sexual immorality is any form or action of sexual intimacy outside of God's design for marriage. Let me say that again. Sexual immorality is any form of, or, or action of sexual intimacy outside of God's design for marriage. Uh, this is actually consistent with Jesus. This is not counter to what Jesus says. In fact, you can look up in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. It talks about marriage and God's creation of sex for marriage. Look, I don't think I need to spend much time on talking about how this is countercultural. I mean, I think we can actively all go, yep, this is very different than the world around us. Sexual intimacy for marriage only? Our culture says that's not it. As long as you love the person or it feels right, who cares if there's a ring on it? Do whatever you want. Paul says that's how the Gentiles, or in this context, non-Christ followers view their sexual ethic. He says they base their belief off of their own passions and their own lust. He is saying that the Gentiles shape their life by personal desires, lust, and I would say short-term happiness. Let's trace this line of thought out. If my hope is in short-term happiness, then my life will be shaped by filling it with every experience I can obtain to chase after that feeling, regardless of what Jesus says. Let me be bold. That is not a life anchored in Christ Jesus. That's not. Rather, Scripture talks about how our body is a temple for the Holy Spirit. And we should live our lives as living sacrifices. If you follow Jesus, then we need to follow all the practices and patterns, he said, including what he says about sex. And what did Jesus teach? That sex is designed for marriage only. Period. Look, I believe that God is concerned with how your long-term character is being developed and who you are becoming, which is why he calls us to live counter to the culture. Knowing that your hope is in Jesus will lead you to make difficult decisions. If your hope is in Jesus, then your life will be shaped by it, including how you view sex. If you're sitting here and you're saying, man, this view on sex is old-fashioned. It's out of sync. It's out of sync with society today. Let me just tell you, you're actually right. This is old-fashioned. In fact, Jesus is the definition of old-fashioned. Nothing is really that much older than Jesus. He's been around since before creation, all right? So if you want to say this is old-fashioned, let me just say it, gold star, you got it. All right? He is old-fashioned. And actually, this is at creation, where Jesus was, he decided what's good, and he created sex, and he has a purpose for it. So yes, this is old-fashioned. And yes, this is out of sync with our society today. Following Jesus will lead you to a counter-cultural way of living. And I believe that the conscious choice to abstain from sexual immorality will be part of helping you become more like Jesus. And who is Jesus? He's holy. <laughs> He's holy. Look back at verses 7 and 8. For God called us not in impurity, but in, what's the word there? Holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Look, God wants our foundation to be found in him. And for us to become more like him, we have to ask the question, what is God like? Right? If we're becoming more like him, we need to know what he is. And God is holy. And according to verse 7, he calls us to that. Now, holiness is a fancy church word, right? 
What is holiness? Um, it's being set apart. Or it's being categorically different than anything else. So when we are called to be holy or to live in holiness, we are being called to be countercultural, to be set apart from the world around us. We're actually supposed to be different than the world even when it's not popular. Following Jesus will lead to a countercultural way of living. This is not something I'm saying up here willy-nilly. This is very much biblical. <laughs> Remember at the very beginning when I asked the question, which is more important, what I believe or what I do? How'd you answer that? Now, can I be honest? It's a trick question. It, it really is. Um, truthfully, they both matter. In fact, it's a both and, not an either or. Uh, what I mean is this, what I believe matters, and it should and will influence what I do. Conversely, what I do matters because it shows what I believe. Both need to be present. One without the other is not complete. Scripture will put it this way. Faith without works is dead. Too often I think we fall into this trap. I believe in, our, believe in Jesus. I'll praise him on Sunday. But then our lives show that we don't believe that. Our actions show us something totally different. If we truly believe Jesus is the foundation, then we need to show it in how we live. And if you want to know what, what you truly believe, just look at your actions. They will tell you as well. Look at your calendar. The ways you spend your money. The things you chase after. They will quickly tell you what it is you believe. You see, it's not just about knowing stuff about Jesus. Or knowing what he taught. That's good. But it's about how that knowing Jesus actually transforms how you think. And results in you doing the right thing. You see, Paul and the rest of the New Testament authors care a whole lot about your cognitive understanding of Jesus. They care about people knowing and understanding key facts and having a mental understanding of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And what that means theologically, they want your faith, hope, and love to be in Jesus. But they also care about how all that gets played out in how you live. That's what sanctification is. Allowing your mind to be transformed, to be more like Christ, and practicing his teachings, which leads you to become more like his character. That's what he cares about. All right, you tracking with me so far? We tracking? All right, um, so so far we've talked that, that following Jesus will lead to a countercultural way of living, right? And we've talked about how that plays out in sex, but Paul actually talks about another area of life in which this plays out. And he actually talks about how it impacts how we view work. Yes, work. The thing that provides a paycheck, and I know it's the weekend and it's the last thing you want to think about, right? It's, we, we live for the weekend, right? There's a song about that somewhere, I'm pretty sure. Um, I know that it, it, he's talking about it, but actually Paul challenges the Thessalonians to do their work manner, in a manner worthy of the gospel. Check this out. Um, go to 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 14. Go ahead and flip there. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 14. He says here, we ask you, brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with all. All right, let me sum up this section real quick. Paul is challenging the Thessalonian church to respect those who are working in the Lord, and in verse 14, he also warns against those in idleness. Now, why is... Paul's talking about respecting those who work and warning the idle worker. 
um, it's actually kind of comical. You see, in this church, there was a group of people who were coming to know Jesus, and after they came to know Jesus, they stopped working altogether. They had the ability to work, but they chose not to. They actually didn't see a reason to work. And here's their thought process. Jesus is coming back tomorrow. I mean, literally. Like, today's Sunday, Jesus is coming back on Monday. So what's the point in working at all today? Let's just enjoy life for tomorrow. It's all going to be over. And that kind of makes sense, right? Like, my hope should be in the fact that Jesus is coming. And if I believe he's coming literally tomorrow, my, sh- my day today should be shaped by not working. Why work if it's all for naught? Paul is speaking directly to that group of people. And he warns the church against having this kind of attitude. This is a big issue in the church. So much so that actually in 2 Thessalonians, the, the letter that comes after this one, Paul doubles down and brings it to this issue. Actually, flip over a couple pages. Go to 2 Thessalonians 3. Go to 2 Thessalonians 3. Flip over there. As you go in there, we're going to read verses 6 through 12. So he's doubling down on this idea of work. He says, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness, there's the word again, and not in accord with the tradition that you see from us. Uh, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying with it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this commandment. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. All right, let me be real. This seems kind of harsh at the end, right? Verse 10, if anyone is not willing to work, let them not eat. Uh, This seems almost not loving. Um, Let him not eat. I thought we were supposed to love everyone no matter what. And let me say, that's mostly true, all right? We are supposed to love people. There are multiple times in scripture where Jesus commands us to take care of those in need. So why would Paul make this claim here? Notice the caveat. If anyone is not willing to work. Remember, there were people in the church not able to work who could, and they were taking advantage of others in the church. They were taking advantage of the system and claiming how they live did not matter. So just don't work for tomorrow. It's, it's all going to be over. Paul is saying, and let me say it as quickly as I can, stop it. Stop it. Like, that's not what following Jesus looks like. If your hope is in Jesus Christ, let how you work and the manner in which you work be worthy of Jesus Christ. We don't know when he's coming back. That's one of the end time things he says in here. But we do know that he is. That is true. So keep working hard until he returns. And this is also a warning to those of us and in this church that are idle or simply busybodies. Um, The word in the original language can mean, the busybody can mean someone who is disorderly or insubordinate or undisciplined. It's the idea of a person that is not just a bad worker, but is one who is actively causing division and not doing their job and is counterproductive. In other words, this isn't just a bad worker. This is a really bad worker. Ever worked with one of those? It's funny. I don't see, hear as much laughter with that one for some reason. Um, let me tell you a story. Uh, best way I can describe this. About 10 years ago, I was in seminary. 
And when I was in seminary, um, I had the opportunity, I'd take the summers off from school and I would work as a basically summer help to be a janitor at a local middle school. Um, they paid me 40 hours a week to scrape gum off of the bottoms of desks and wax floors. Hey, a job's a job, right? You got to pay the bills. And I was thankful for it. I learned a lot that summer, actually. Um, my house is in better shape because of that summer, probably. Um, but one of my coworkers, who I'll leave unnamed, but let's just call him Ronnie, all right? He was the definition of an idle worker. You see, Ronnie spent every ounce of energy he had figuring out ways not to do his job. Seriously, I remember one day, well, actually it was every day, uh, we were just about to head into the classroom and start scraping that gum off the bottom of the chair, appetizing, right? And I, I would look and I would watch and I'd look out in the hallway and I would see Ronnie walk into the next classroom, go out the window, lock the window behind him on the second story roof and disappear. Now, let me, let me add this. It was 90 degrees and hot. Um, and he did this every single day. Um, and sometimes it wasn't the roof. He actually locked himself in the basement and caused a gas leak. That's a story for another day, all right? That was a crazy one, all right? He was more interested in sitting on the roof or the basement when it was 90 degrees and humid outside in the sweltering sun than he was being in the AC cleaning, actually doing his job. And then... When we were, would pause and would go to the break room, guess who would magically reappear? Ronnie. And he would walk in the door and he would literally start complaining about how hard work was today. I'm not making this up. I could go on stories over and over. Ronnie was the definition of a busybody or idle worker. He was taking advantage of the system. He was getting a paycheck. He was insubordinate, undisciplined, and he would actually gloat about his lack of work. This is the kind of person Paul is warning against. A person who's not taking, who is taking advantage of the system when they have the ability to work but choose not to. Don't be like Ronnie. You need a bumpy jumper sticker? That's it. All right? You see, Ronnie's hope was in being lazy, and it led him to be a busybody. And honestly, no one would listen to anything he said. His testimony was shot. He wasn't trustworthy. His character showed what it is he believed. Church, listen to Paul here. Work hard. Respect those who do. Live in a manner worthy of Jesus being your boss. And be a, such a good coworker that when people ask you why you work, you can tell them about Jesus. How you live and how you work can be a great evangel evangelistic tool. If your hope is in Jesus, work well. Be the best employee you can. Be faithful so that people may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Working well is countercultural, And we're designed to work. Hear me. I know there are some in this room that listen to this and you can't work. That's a reality. I get it. This is not talking to you. This is talking to those who choose not to. Following Jesus will lead to a countercultural or holy way of living. Look, there's a lot more we could say on this, all right? I could go on and tell you lots more stories about Ronnie, which I'm sure you'd love to hear. But for the sake of time, I want to close out our time with three self-examination questions. As we're trying to figure out what does it look like to live a holy life or sanctified life, what are some questions that I can ask of myself as we examine to figure out what that looks like? So here they are. Here's the first one. Have I put my full faith, hope, and love in Jesus Christ? Have I put my full faith, hope, and love in Jesus Christ? Remember, this entire book, this entire idea is predicated or is founded on the idea that Jesus is 
the center of everything. And so I think actually starting here is the examination. Do you actually believe Jesus is who he is? And if you're wrestling through who he is and trying to figure it out, let me just encourage you. On the way in, you, hopefully you got a connect card. On that connect card, fill out, say, I want to learn more about this Jesus. We have campus pastors and others who would love to talk to you about who Jesus is and the truth of who he is. Please do not leave here without talking to somebody. Have I put my faith, hope, and love in Jesus Christ? A second question is this. What do I need to start doing to demonstrate that my foundation is in Christ? What do I need to start doing to show that my foundation, I believe in Jesus, but now what in my life do I need to do to allow that to change me? Maybe it's something like this. Maybe you need to commit to coming to church every single week. Maybe it is you need to start praying or reading your Bible. Maybe you need to engage with the followers of Jesus. Maybe you should start practicing the spiritual disciplines, Sabbath, rest, solitude, community, worshiping together. There's a whole list of them that we could get you. What do I need to start doing? And the third question, conversely, is this. What do I need to stop doing? What do I need to stop doing? What are the habits or practices in my life that are pulling me away from who Jesus is? Man, as you navigate through this and you navigate through the question, how do I live a sanctified life? I challenge you. Actually, I triple dog dare you. Spend about 10 minutes in some time, either today or tomorrow, working through these three questions. Actually answer them out. What are the things in life that you need to start doing, stop doing, and is my foundation in Jesus? Look, following Jesus is not easy, but it's worth it. How I live will show what I believe in. If followers of Christ, I urge you, and I, this is my heart. You want to know where I am? I want you to grow in faith, hope, and love in Jesus and be more like him. Because I believe the hope of Christ will change everything. And it will change you. Let's pray. God, you are good. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the ability that you give us for us to know who you are. And God, I pray today as we hear from your word that you would illuminate things in our life that have become stumbling blocks or things that miss us from being more like you. God, you are gracious and merciful and loving and slow to anger and you care so much about us and and you hate sin and what it does to us. And so God, I pray just even for me and for us in this room that follow Jesus, like that you help us become more like you. God, you are worth chasing after and help us to do that. God, we love you and praise you. We pray this all in your son's name, Jesus.